Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast, Episode 9. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me is Dan Alberth. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Brian. A little housekeeping to get out of the way. Nothing in this episode should be considered personal, financial, or investment advice for you. For things unique to you and special to your situation, you need to consult with your own personal financial advisor or do your own homework. You know, Dan, we've talked about this. You've, you've known each other a long time, but uh, th- I got to thinking about as people are talking about investing, there's a phenomenon that I see happen quite often, and it reminded me of uh, other other areas of life. In the, and uh, we haven't mentioned this before, but I, I spent about 30 years learning and teaching Taekwondo off and on for just a long, long time. And when when I got to the point where I was teaching more often, there was this very common thing that would occur as you, you know, once you go through, you're learning Taekwondo over a martial art, you start off with very, very basic fundamentals. And you might be doing drills and just getting that muscle memory and getting that balance and getting your body in a position where it can even do some of the more interesting kicks or, or techniques. And there'd be a level of impatience that would happen with some people where at some point in the training, they'd, they'd raise their hand and say, you know, Hey, you know, Brian, is there a way, you know, can we, can we stop learning this basic stuff? Can we stop doing this boring stuff? That's this fundamentals. And can we get on with, can you show me something fancy? Can you teach me that, that jumping, spinning kick, for example, um, or something like that, that was really complicated. That sounds and, like the Karate Kid movie that you're talking about with Mr. Miyagi. Well, sim- yeah, similar. I mean, it's wax on, wax off. And it's 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 just this. There's a universal thing. Is that and it, it's common sense to me that if you if you want to jump, spin in the air, and then do a kick, you ought to have some level of coordination. You need to have that muscle memory, and for you know, at the very least, you should be able to stand on one leg for more than five or ten seconds. Sure. And so. As I'm, as I'm trying to explain to these people, is like, you know, what you want to do is you want to have something that's effective. You know, some people just want to look cool. They don't, they don't really care if it's effective. They just want to feel like they're cool. And they want to feel like they're unique and they're stroking their ego a little bit. We've talked about ego before, but um, it, it, if you're, you know, think about in, in a Taekwondo situation or even MMA or uh, UFC fighting, anything you're in combat, what you want is effective. The, tar- the target you want to hit gets hit and it creates the points for your sport or it creates the effect you're looking for in the ring or whatever. And whether you do 15 cartwheels and a triple Lindy and a double twist and then you kick somebody in the gut, you could have just walked over and kicked them in the gut. And the, the, the effectiveness comes from the fundamentals. It comes from the basics. You can't do anything fancy or cool or cool looking um, unless you already have the fundamentals down hard and, and, and people really underestimate across all things, whether it's sports or, um, or, or, or investing, people want to discount the power and the effectiveness of fundamentals and the basics. And we want to focus on some of the basics today. So there's really three areas of focus. If you want to really get effective with your investing, you need to have these basic fundamental three areas handled. You need to focus here first. A lot of people are focusing on, you know, what stocks should I pick this week? And they're skipping all the way to the end of the things that either 
have a lesser effect or it's really cool and sexy, but it may not be as effective. You need to focus first on what we call asset allocation. This is where risk gets managed for the most part. Your asset allocation is nothing more than your blend between stocks, bonds, cash, other types of investments. You could be precious metals. You could throw commodities in there. You could throw real estate in there. But the blend of all these various categories is where really the rubber meets the road. You can even slice and dice the stocks into different categories. You can have domestic and international and that kind of thing. You can slice up bonds differently too. But you need to focus on asset allocation. That's where risk gets managed. It's probably the most important thing, especially if you're trying to understand risk. Most people don't even think about risk until after it already hits them upside the head and they realize, oh, wait a second, what did I get myself into? So that's like the biggest rock when you think of investing, when you go to build a portfolio, you start with asset allocation as the biggest rock. And you're saying biggest rock, like biggest rock that goes in the jar first. We've been talking about this in previous episodes, this idea that you've got rocks, gravel, sand, and water. It all needs to go in the jar, but you want to start with the big rock first. That's right. Right. So we're just prioritizing is all. Okay. The second thing to focus on is understanding how taxes can can affect your investments. Um, There's capital gains tax. There's tax on, and there's long-term and short-term there. There's tax on interest. There's tax on dividends. Some dividends are taxed more than others. You need to understand how different types of accounts may be taxed. Like there's just a regular account where it's, you just pay the normal taxes on all those things. You have accounts that are tax deferred. You have accounts that may be tax free. There's even some interest that's tax free federally, but maybe not state there's and vice versa. You just need to understand that. And we're not going to go into the details of current tax law because someone might be listening to this after tax law has changed, but you need to understand taxes. That's another area of focus. Why is that? Because taxes can be a biggest, another big cost. If you have pay a lot of unnecessary taxes, that definitely reduces your net net return. And the third thing is just expenses. And people uh, really th- uh, get hung up on expenses. It's been widely publicized that, ex- that you don't want to pay too much in expenses. And it's gotten to the point where people think it's like the absolute number one, most important, most impactful thing you could have is if there's any expense whatsoever on your investments, then you're absolutely making this catastrophic mistake. And the truth is, is that some of them are okay. You can pay a little bit of expense if, it, if you're getting some value out of it. You just don't want to go overboard. You don't want to be paying 3% per year. Mm-hmm in overall expenses or 4% in some cases with some of the more complicated products that are out there or worse. But if things are relatively reasonable and you're getting value for what you're paying, that's the key thing to to pay attention to. But there's also other expenses besides uh, investment expenses like your, your cost of your mutual funds and that kind of thing or your ETFs. There's your own expenses at home. There's expenses just for living your lifestyle that could be unnecessary or excessive and and it may blow up your goals you want to focus on those they're very highly controllable the other thing is you might uh have an expense of you know you might be hiring a very very expensive uh tax attorney who's going to charge you a huge amount of money on some very complicated tax savings program. If you're a a wealthy person and you've sold a business or you have a transaction coming up, that's going to be a significant cost to you tax wise. It would be prudent to investigate how can you possibly reduce those taxes, but you also have to consider the cost of the advice and the setting up that program. 
And for some people, the cost is not there. It's not enough to really add value in terms of the cost of the program versus the tax savings. So asset allocation, taxes and expenses, that's what you need to be focusing on. For investing. For investing. Those so th- before we dive in any further, Brian, how I'm thinking about investing. Uh, over 20 years ago, I was in an investment club with my brothers and my dad, and we got together to invest in stocks. And so when we're using the term investing for the sake of what we're about to talk about today and what we're talking about today on this podcast, we're talking not about hobby investing where you have your few shekels, your few dollars that you're putting aside to buy a stock here and there for fun, for quote unquote fun. Yeah, this isn't entertainment investing this that, isn't this isn't the replacement for gambling because you can't bet on sports games, you know, this past few months or you can't go to Vegas, that kind of thing. This is for the serious financial planning oriented I need this to achieve a financial goal in my life type investing. Right, right. right. So I, I just wanted to verbalize that and so really just in the back of your mind there are you know just keep those three things in the back of your mind and people need to focus on those three things and that's what we focus on with with folks is you know people saying hey can you beat the market who can beat the market what's the point of of you know beat the market do better than the S&P 500 or whatever do better than the Dow Jones average and I'm not paying a dime for anything unless I can beat that market and even even amateur investors are just getting started. They're looking and they're saying, "Hey, if I can get one percent a day or one t- or five percent a week or whatever," and they have no idea that that's completely not probable. Yes, but everybody wants to do better than their neighbor. Everybody wants to stroke their ego and do that. And and so you have this idea, this bogey of quote the market, and that could be the stock market, that could be the bond market or whatever. But everybody wants to kind of say, "Hey, can I beat the market?" And they sit down with a professional. They say, okay, first thing, you sit down with a financial planner who deals with the comprehensive financial picture of their entire life, including everything, insurance, planning for funding education, that kind of thing. And it all boils down to, okay, so what's your return you know, for your program? And a true fiduciary is not going to have their program. They're going to say, they're going to diagnose and assess and, and, and prescribe a situation a set of solutions that is very highly probable to meet that person's needs. They're like a doctor. You don't go into a doctor and say, so tell me about the medicine you sell. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's completely backwards. That being said, focus on these three, three areas, asset allocation. That's where you're focused on risk. You need to understand that risk. You need to have, make sure that asset allocation is going to be where you end up after you know your goals and it's where you're going to end up after you know your risk tolerance. It's how you make your portfolio match your risk tolerance and your goals. We talk about this all the time. It's got to match your goals, got to match your risk tolerance. And how do you do that? It starts with the asset allocation. Once you know your stocks, bonds, cash, whatever mix, then you start diving down and saying, okay, within the stocks, how am I going to invest in stocks? Within the bond area, how much am I going to invest in the bond area? And if any, and then within the cash area, what could I do there? What about other? Other could be, you know, other stuff like alternative assets, alternative strategies, that kind of thing. You mentioned just a moment ago about 
matching your risk tolerance of your investment portfolio to the risk tolerance of who you are or the risk characteristics of your portfolio versus your own tolerance. Yes. That's important because if those, if that risk doesn't line up, you may be putting yourself, you, the investor may be putting yourself in a position to make bad decisions in the future. Oh, hundred percent. You know, if, if you've got, let's say you have a, you know, we, we measure risk from one to 99 on our, on our system that we use. And let's say someone's risk score for them is a 50, but their investments are actually at an 80, 80 being very risky, 80 being much more risky, like the stock hundred percent stock market. That person is likely to be very, very happy in a bull market. But then if there's something like what we saw, if you have a bear market like 2008, 2000, that kind of thing, their portfolio is going to drop way, way more than what they're comfortable. And that person is less likely to ride it out and make, they're going to make a bad decision selling low at the bottom. And then they may stay conservative through the recovery and they may not feel, they may use their feelings and go, Hey, I don't feel comfortable getting back in until after the recovery. And they missed, they missed the recovery. Right. Likewise, if your risk score is a 50 and your investments are like a 30, well, then your investments aren't keeping up with your expectations in the good times. And so it's exactly the flip side. If you're having a really bull market in, say, stocks, and you're expecting that you're going to be getting about half of the upside of stocks because you're 50% in stocks, 50% bonds, let's say, you're lagging behind your expectations. And so what happens there and the mistake is, is that somebody could go, hey, let's use an example of like the end of 2019, after a great year in the stock market, someone whose portfolio is not matching them may look and go, I think I need to get more aggressive. I mean, look at what the stock market just did in 2019. That one index was up over 30%. I was only up, you know, maybe 10 I think I need to get more aggressive. I need, I want to get me some of that. Right. Basically. Right. So, uh, that person may buy high. And I saw this in 1999. I saw this in 2007, people starting to get aggressive, getting a little itch. You know, I want to get more return. I want to get more return and they forget about risk and they buy high and then everything collapses. And then they go, Oh, I woulda, shoulda, coulda, don't. So if you can match the portfolio to your own risk tolerance and a sti- highly statistically, you know, there's a high, high probability that you're going to meet your goals. That's better. You're more likely to be satisfied on the up. You're more likely to be comfortable on the down times and, and stick st- with the plan, stick st- with the strategy that you've implemented and stick with it. And speaking of strategy, you, once you're, l- let's talk about that. So you know your asset allocation, you know your goals, you know your risk tolerance. Now it comes down to, okay, yeah, but how do I actually invest? I want to have 30% of my money or 50% or 70% of my money in stocks, for example, or in the stock market and get those kind of returns. But what are my options? You know, how can I, how do I really do that? And um, there's lots of ways. The most common way that most people use to make their decisions about 
which investments will make up their stock portion of their portfolio or their bond portion of their portfolio is, I mean, I understand it, but the most common thing is people chase returns and they ignore valuations. And I'll come back to valuations, but chasing returns is basically this. You look at the list of investments available to you. You're looking online and doing a search or you're looking on a screen of the best funds in this category. I want to have X amount in large U.S. stocks. So what's the best? I'll look and I'll say, what's the best performing investment over the past one year, three year, five year, 10 year, whatever, 20 year. And I'll simply buy the one that has done the best because obviously these guys know what they're doing. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, it, it would make sense. You think, hey, these people know what they're doing. Look at all the returns they've gotten. They ha- it must be skill. Well, this gets back to your use of the words doing versus what it has done. And it gets back to the disclosure that you see on everything past performance does not is not an indication of future results. Well, it certainly isn't a promise of future results. I mean, you could, you could, I could see somebody saying, wait, 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 guys. Stocks historically have done better over long periods of time than cash. So obviously, there's some level of past performance as an indication of future results. You know, if you're invested over 20-year period of time, 30-year period of time, and you're in the stock market, you're likely to do better than if you're in cash. That's why asset allocation is so important in the first place. Because, you know, if you're all in cash, you're going to get one experience over a long period of time. And if you're all in stocks, you're going to get a very different experience over a very long period of time. Now, what's going to happen next six months, next year? Nobody knows. We'll come back to that. But you're right. You, you know, there's no such thing as something is doing well when you're looking at investments that are variable. Unless there's a rate and a date, you have no idea what you're going to get. So you have to kind of look at things a little differently. But the most common one is people will simply chase the returns. They assume that past performance is going to exactly repeat. If I just buy the one that did the best, I'll do the best the next year or the next three years or the next five years. Because look, it's, it's done well. It's probably going to keep doing well. And truth is the research completely uh, shows that there's really no relationship. These things don't typically repeat. Um, I had a question similar to this come up online uh, last night. And, uh, and the answer I gave was really simply this, because he was asking about the tech sector, the technology sector. And he said, hey, if, if it's been doing so well, I mean, these people must be really skilled. And I said, well, if they've beaten if they've done incredibly, incredibly well over the last, say, three to five, 10 years or whatever, and you got to read the prospectus of that ETF or that fund. If a manager truly has done amazingly well and they had the flexibility to go anywhere they wanted in the whole world and they happened to choose the thing that did amazingly well, that might be skill. But if you read a prospectus and technology or large U.S. stocks have been the absolute best thing for the last, say, decade, and that's the only place these people are allowed to invest, then honestly, that's just where they always invest. And this time they may have lucked out. It may not be skill. It may just be that's a tech fund. And tech is having its day. There have been times when financials did better than technology. Sure, healthcare. Or healthcare. And, And so just because it's a healthcare fund or a technology fund or a large U.S. stock fund, doesn't necessarily mean that there's skill involved. It may just be that was what was in season that time during that time frame. So chasing returns is probably not the most effective way because I've never seen a decade repeat where like the same things that did great one decade also are the same best things the following decade. It's rare. 
they may do well, they may do okay, or they may completely tank. Like we've, we mentioned um, examples in the past where we had a situation like um, General Electric 20 years ago was in the 60s, and now the stock is in single digits in price. Yes. It hasn't split. It just dropped 80-something percent over a 20-year period. And it was a great company 20 years ago. Yeah, it was viewed as a darling company that everyone should own as a replacement of the S&P back in the yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, there's other examples that happened in the dot-com era where you have um, companies that are just touted on covers of magazines and things like that where somebody might be man of the year for their, their companies, just the best thing since sliced bread. And you can watch that stock over the following 12 to 36 months and it could be just completely a dog. So it's just not the best way to go about, but it's certainly an option and some people do chase return. It's very common. The, the better thing to focus on is probably valuations, and that's um, we'll, we'll come to that in a little bit. Uh, another way of dealing with picking your investments is you could just say, hey, I'm just going to own the whole market, period. And statistically, that's actually worked out fairly well. Um, the key here is that if you, if you're just going to buy the whole market, you need to just be, have extreme patience, extreme patience. We're talking at least 10, if not 20 year time frames. if you're just going to buy the market, regardless, no matter what's going on in the world, you're just going to buy the whole market all the, you know, today with your lump sum, right? You need to be very patient because there will be, there will be down times. And if you buy, if, like, for example, if you bought the whole market in the, in the peak in, like, say, March of 2000, you had a very tough decade that followed in terms of returns. They called it the lost decade. And things were expensive at that time. So you got to be really patient if you're doing that. The, the third option is to buy things that are what would be considered cheap assets. And then also you need to hold them long enough to let things out. I'd say you have to hold them probably 10 years or so. And when we say cheap assets, this is where we've been, we've been alluding to this is this idea of valuation. Cheap assets does not mean you're buying a stock or a bond that has a low price. That's not what it means. Cheap assets doesn't mean go out and buy a 50 cent per share stock, some penny stock. That's absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. What you want to do to figure out if, I guess we'll back up and figure out, you know, if you're looking at a stock, how is the price determined? A lot of folks think that the price is the value of the company. Like, so you can look at a company like Amazon and it's got a price that's very high on its shares. And you look at another company, like we mentioned GE and its price is $6. Well, if let's, if you have a $600 stock and you have a $6 stock, the $600 company is not a hundred times the size of the $6 company necessarily. The way you figure out share prices is you say, what's the total value of the company divided by how many shares are out there? There's no rule that says every company has to have the same number of shares. Each company, when they go public, they issue a, a different number of shares. And so the value of the company based on what people think the company's worth the market value divided by the, the number of shares, you get the share price. And it, in, this, in our stock market in modern society, we have this awesome, efficient technology and 
this huge market where this, this is being negotiated millisecond by millisecond throughout every trading day for all these publicly traded companies. So if you've got price and the price is not really an indication of anything, how do you figure out whether one company is as good as another company? Is one company on sale? Is another company expensive? You got to come up with a way of figuring out what's the value to me as a shareholder. Am I, am I getting a good deal for buying this investment or this investment category? And that's valuation. And all you do to get valuation is you, you take the price and you divide by something. You can divide it by profits. You can divide it by the book value of the company. You can divide it by the cash flow of the company. There's lots of different ways to do that. But when you take price and divide it by something, then you have something that you can look at where you can compare how's this company compared to where it was in sometime in the past. Is it cheaper now or more expensive than it was in the past? Or you can compare one company to another company in the same business. You can compare Intel to AMD, both microchip manufacturers. And you could see that if you look at the price, you might think one thing, but if you look at valuation, like price divided by the earnings. So the PE ratio. PE ratio, price to book, price to cash flow. And there's lots of ways you can do valuation. There's other ratios out there that are more esoteric, but the idea is that you're dividing by something to equalize and make it a level playing field for all parties concerned. Because the price per share is not an indication of value. It's just how much it costs to get a share. I'm going to circle back to that. If I have a billion-dollar company and I have one share outstanding, the share price will be a billion dollars. If I have... A thousand shares, my billion dollar company, I have a thousand shares, it's going to be a million dollars a share. Now, over here, I have a, a three billion dollar company and I have three million shares outstanding. My share price is going to be lower, even though the company's triple the size of the other one. Price isn't valuation. So you've got to look at valuation. But even if you, so let's say you've gone through and you figure out what valuation is and you've made a choice. You say, I like to buy things when they're low. So I'm going to buy things at a low valuation. You know, the logic being, hey, if you buy something cheaper than what it's worth, you might have a higher return over the next decade or so. And the truth is, valuation has a very high correlation to future results. If you buy low, at a low valuation of the, say, the stock market, there's a really high correlation, like over 90% correlation to the future 10-year returns or the future 12-year returns, depending on which metric of valuation you're using. So if you buy low valuation, historically speaking anyway, there's a pretty good chance you're going to have above average return. Over if, the next 10, 12 Over years. the next 10 or 12 years, from point to point. Yeah. Close your eyes, wait 10 years, and your returns would be higher. Historically, that's what we've seen happen across different sectors, different time periods, different areas of the stock market, internationally, domestically. Valuation seems to matter. If you buy something like at 2000, like you buy the NASDAQ market at the peak of the market in 2000 in the dot-com bubble, and you buy things that are extreme high valuations, well, your future 10-year returns are lower than average. And that's been durable for a very, very long time. But even then, you got to wait the 10 years because although that's indica an indication of how things may end 10 years or 12 years from now, it doesn't tell you anything about the journey along the way. So you take point to point. If you say, hey, um, 
based on valuations right now, the U.S. stock market is going to get somewhere between 0 and 5% returns over the next decade. It can get there a lot of different ways. You can go kind of sideways choppy for a decade where it barely moves a little bit. Low volatility, but just kind of bouncing around on its way to its 0 to 5% annualized return. Or it could go way, way down and then come up, having averaged 0 to 5 or it could go way up and then come way down, having average a zero to five. So we don't know anything about the one year, three year, five year. That's very, very difficult. There's been no factors that really kind of give us an indication of what's going to happen over a one year, three year. This is why most experts say, if you're investing in stocks or the stock market or stock mutual funds or index funds or ETFs, exchange traded funds, that kind of thing, you need to have a long-term time horizon. And the long term is defined as 10 years At plus. least. And why do they say that? It's not because they're trying to hold people back. It's not because there's some sort of a sinister like conspiracy to hold back the little guy. It's literally because, historically speaking, the math tends to work for those periods of time. It, they're just putting the odds in your favor. Yeah, another one of our guidelines is probability, not prediction. So this speaks yeah. directly to that. Yeah, and the thing is, nobody really knows the future. But if you study long-term history, like like history decades before you were born, all throughout, there's going to be a lot of irrelevant stuff, but there also is some very relevant stuff. And that's why the, that's where the advice comes from. These are all best practices. This isn't some old fogey boomer. I've heard people referring to boomers as old fogies now, and I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of highly intelligent people in that generation. But you, you, I hear that now sometimes from very young people are like, oh, yeah, this, that's, that's old school, man. Yeah. And it's, uh, no, this, this all came to a conclusion because of math and actual results of history. So keep that in mind. But so if you want to buy cheap assets, so we talked about chasing returns, probably not the best way to do it. We talked about just buying the whole market and saying, whatever, I'm going to buy the, buy the whole thing or I'm going to buy just one index and ride everything out forever. That's just going to take extreme patience. If you buy cheap assets, you need to hold them long enough. You need to hold cheap assets for a decade or more in order for the thing to work out for you. At least that's what history has shown, statistically speaking. A fourth option in your strategy for investing, you could decide, I want to actively manage and mitigate unnecessary risks, unnecessary taxes, and unnecessary expenses. Now, keep in mind the focus here. We're not saying we're going to actively manage returns. Can't be done. No one can predict short-term returns very well by actively managing, picking stocks, trading, that kind of thing. But you can mitigate unnecessary risk. You can mitigate unnecessary taxes you can mitigate unnecessary expenses. And the way you do this, you can do this through systems. You know, we have a system with a lot of our accounts, Dan, where it's a monthly adjustment from domestic to foreign or back, you know, backing off of our normal foreign exposure to domestic when that makes sense, backing off of stock market exposure when that makes sense. And that's one way to mitigate risk potentially. There's strategies for mitigating taxes like tax loss harvesting or they call it asset location. I'm going to have certain assets in certain accounts, certain assets in my IRA, certain assets in my joint account with my spouse. 
and I'm going to mitigate taxes that way. That's right. Some, if you own individual stocks or stock funds that don't have dividends, they generally don't generate much in the way of taxes. And if they're not generating a lot of taxes, sometimes it makes sense to put them in non-qualified or after-tax accounts rather than your retirement accounts. Correct. So you you can have systems in place, strategies that are out there that are based on probability, not prediction, that kind of thing. And some people might, there are trading strategies. There's people out there that follow charts and things. Um, They they spend a lot of time trading or they look at, um, they're reading a lot of news on companies and, and filings at at the SEC to identify what's going on with these companies. Um, and that's a, that's a potential way of trying to ac- accomplish some sort of added value when you're investing. Um, there's other tools out there like options. Call options and put options, if used properly, can mitigate risk or they can generate a little more income potentially. But it's always a trade-off. It's always a trade-off. Whenever you inject complexity into a portfolio or an investing system, there's either going to be an added cost of taxes or there might be an added expense. And you just need to be aware of that. That's why we say you also got to look at expenses. What's effective? Net, 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 what's most effective? So you want to be simple and effective and as simple as possible, honestly, because you're going to save money on taxes. You're going to save money on expenses, generally speaking, if things are simpler. At least what I've seen. Yeah. And when you're simple, it's easy to understand it. You look back six months after you've initiated your program, you're going to have better understanding, a better chance of understanding what it is you're doing and communicating that with your spouse. And that's a huge one, too. I think you and I have been in people's homes where we'll meet with one of the one of the members of the household, the, the head investor, if you will, of the household, and they're very proud to show you all their spreadsheets and how they track everything, and they've got all these systems. And within 15, 20 minutes, we can't make sense of what they're doing very easily. As experts in the field, we can't understand what they're doing because they're shuffling papers around. They've got this tab for their – and it's it's just a very messy do-it-yourself spreadsheet type of way of that they track everything and they make all their decisions. I guarantee you their spouse doesn't understand it. And if somebody's been managing that system that's complicated and has to be managed on a week-to-week basis, and they've been doing that for a number of years and then something happens to them, that whole system could blow up. It's kind of like the old the movies where it's like, hey, if I don't type the code in, the building blows up. If I have to type a code in every two hours or the building's going to blow up, and that's sure. like a, a way of keeping yourself safe from the bad guy in the movie or whatever. Well, what happens in some cases is, is that the person managing this complicated trading strategy, it has to be managed. And when they pass away, when somebody passes away or they, they get hospitalized and they can't manage that portfolio for a period of time, I promise you, if you're in a hospital, the last thing your spouse is thinking is, let me dive into the computer and figure out what the trading strategy is and make sense of the finances right away while you're in surgery. And they're not doing that. That's right. Or worse, they're planning a funeral or something like that. They're not thinking about the finances. They assume everything's in stasis. So if you have a complicated situation and your spouse or your kids or your loved ones, the building might blow up, figuratively speaking. You don't want to have something that requires your personal attention on a daily, weekly basis necessarily. You need to have everything kind of in a set-it-forget-it thing, at least if you have a family situation and you want to care, you care about that situation. 
or you need to have something in place where the building won't blow up. Yeah, or the spouse can step in and, and do the job. Right. Another strategy, people seeking to improve upon, if I just own the overall market, if you will, we've seen this, people will seek higher returns by using leverage. They're borrowing money from other people. This could be, in the simplest form, you could be a margin trading account. We talked about the great crash in 1929. Yes, we did. um, People were investing with borrowed money, and it just levered things up, and it worked really, really, really well when things were going up. And I I commented on an online group last week, leverage works both ways. And in 1929, when things started going south, boy, everything blew up. So if you're going to use borrowed money, that can be very, very dangerous. Now, people will also use leverage in other places. We see this with, you can increase your term returns by having a successful business. You borrow money from a bank, have a successful business. It's not all your money in there. So the return on your personal money you put into that business, let's say the bank funded 80% of the of the construction project or the business financing to get that equipment or whatever it is, Maybe your return on your personal amount of money you put in is really, really high if you're successful. Now, if your business folds and you're on the hook with a personal guarantee, you could actually stand to lose way, way more than what your original investment is. So just understand, if you're borrowing money, seeking higher returns, you're taking more risk, whether it you believe it or not. amplifies the returns. Leverage it, has a way of amplifying the upside and amplifying the downside. In both directions and little word on real estate investing real estate investing is a business financed by a mortgage typically where you rent out a a piece of property whether you call whether you do it all in your name or whether you have an llc you know our friend kevin was on a prior episode he was saying hey if you're a real estate investor you ought to have an llc or something like that in place it's a business and you're using other people's money and there's leverage. And as long as the tenants in there paying enough rent to cover all the costs of the place and maintenance and mortgage payment, you stand to have a very good return on your amount that you put down. But it doesn't always go in that direction. We saw this in 2008. Yeah. With, they've had great returns. I mean, Real estate over a long period of time, it's a big piece of some of our portfolios. We, we'll, we'll invest in real estate um, investment trusts sometimes. And sometimes those can be very good, but they're not perfect. And they're, they're just another category of investments that can have ups and downs just like anything else. And the power of rental property that everybody's, you know, I see keyboard warriors out there t- touting rental property, all this kind of stuff about the, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it, there have been some good experiences. We have clients with rental property as well. Yeah, it can be a great thing. But they understand that it's a business and they they put in the time and they treat it as a business. Sometimes yeah. if the toilet explodes or a roof is leaking, they're on call to deal yeah. with those It's just issues. like anything else. You got to do it very, very well and you've got to execute very consistently in order to get that return over time. And you, in, a, in a lot of ways, you kind of need to be lucky that you bought a property at a time right before property values in that area went up. So it's it's tricky. And it's just it's not like some uh, magic bullet 
that you can just point, click, and own rental property, and suddenly you're going to be a gazillionaire. It, it doesn't quite work. There's risk. Just understand there's always risk there. So you could successfully use borrowed money, and that if you're successful at it, it could amplify a return. But to your point, if you're not that great at it, it could amplify your returns the other way. You can have a big problem. Other ways you can improve your results long-term from investing. This is, this is like the most controllable one. <laughs> you could spend less money on your lifestyle and invest more. You run the math out on that. When you contribute more to funding your long-term goal, your long-term goal arrives sooner in many cases. I mean, that's not has nothing to do with like which investments you picked, has nothing to do with asset allocation, has nothing to do with taxes, but it has everything to do with expenses. If you spend less of your money, you can save more of your money, you can fund that goal, your goal can your your ability to reach that goal could happen sooner. That's right. And the more money that you're able to save, the less aggressive you need to be. Yeah. And it it is a trade off. It really, really is a trade-off. I mean, you're going to spend $30,000 with your bonus on that vacation, or are you going to spend $10,000 on that vacation? I mean, there's some pretty high-income people that we've interacted with. They have some big bonuses sometimes, highly compensated salespeople, that kind of thing. Executives sometimes have a pretty good-sized bonus. The wise ones don't blow the whole bonus. They use it as a way to supercharge their retirement or supercharge pay for a kid's college or something like that. They don't go blow it on a vacation. I mean, great memories, but you can have a great vacation with great memories for less than 50 or $70,000. And sadly, we've seen that happen. There's some other things to keep in mind when you're investing. There are... There has been a lot of academic research. If you're a beginner investor and you're wondering, hey, there's got to be something that has, been, that has been proven that over long periods of time tends to do better than if I own the overall market. And if you're thinking that, you're right. You're not the first person to wonder that. In fact, people have dedicated their entire lives to studying that. And... You know, here in the Chicago area, University of Chicago, uh, Eugene Fama uh, did a lot of pioneer research on this. these ideas of what are some of the factors that might be durable factors over long periods of time. And um, the research that, that, that he did and, and with, uh, with others, they, they, you, you hear they've come up with the Fama French model of factor investing or the Fama French factors. And the factors they identified were three. They were size. The size of the company. Size of the company. So generally speaking, the smaller businesses tended to grow more than the bigger businesses over long, long periods of time. We're not talking five years. We're talking 20, 30-year periods of time. Long, long periods of time. If you've ever seen one of those long-term charts of, of, of investments like... Uh, there's a company called Ibbotson. If you look up the Ibbotson chart since 1925 or whatever. Their mountain chart. Mountain chart. So yes. it's like these lines showing the accumulated value if you invested in this category of investments versus this other. And they show cash and T-bills and long-term co- government bonds. And then they show large U.S. stocks. 
And the one that's done the best for the last 100 years or so, 95 years, has been the smaller stocks. So small has tended to do better over long periods of time than, than large. Is that a guarantee that small cap is going to be the best all the time? Uh, absolutely not. Look at the last decade. Yeah, right. Large absolutely crushed small and has done that for, had done that for a while. So, but it has historically been a very long-term factor that's squeezed out a little extra. It's not like dramatic, but it's squeezed out a little extra. You know, one to two percent per year, maybe over long periods of time. And I say long periods of time. I'm going to say it over and over again. This isn't short-term stuff. Second one is quality of the business. Make kind of makes sense. A strong business tends to survive. They have a strong balance sheet. They have a good customer base. They have a wide moat for defense. They can withstand recessions. Those those companies tend to do well over time. The companies that are not as strong financially, well, they tend to not be as profitable. They tend to go out of business. It tends to have better, worse returns. So if you're investing in a thousand of those versus a thousand really great, well managed companies, odds are it's going to do a little bit better. So that kind of makes sense. And the, the whole market has the great companies that are well-managed, the high quality, and it includes some of the lower quality companies. So it's common sense. Then the next trick is like, who are the quality companies? It's a whole other conversation we don't have time for. Right. The third one that Fama French came up with was this idea of valuation. We hit on that earlier. Um, valuation is, in fact, and there's been... A, follow on research for by other people on this, but it's the number one most correlated factor that I've seen with future results. And those future results are 10, 12 year results. So if you're looking at valuation and you're buying low valuation, you tend to have better results 10 to 12 years out, but you got to hold for the 10 to 12 years. It's about a ninety percent correlation, or something. Some of the factor? some of the different variations. Um, there, there's there's uh, various people out there that have different. There's uh, Schiller has one called the the Cape. Um, the uh, the Cape PE, and his measurement is uh, correlated like with a ten year return. I think um, John Hussman has one that's highly correlated with like the twelve year return, like ninety three percent. Uh, correlation there and there's others there's a, there's one called the q ratio there's regular pe there's price to cash flow i mean all these things have some level of correlation but it's it's higher than things like putting your finger in the wind and guessing about what's going to do better intuition has not necessarily been proven to be a, a highly correlated thing you know i just think it's going to do well you know, it's the future well, it sounds you like know, that's probably not the way to go. So valuations one that, and then later on, um, there's actually been some research uh, later on after Fama French that that identified that momentum is actually a thing. That's this idea of a self fulfilling prophecy. Something's been doing well. People jump on board because there's momentum in that company, and 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 um, it continues to do well for a while, and that momentum may be durable for a shorter period of time. Momentum doesn't last a decade. Momentum doesn't last more than maybe a couple of years in most of the research that I've seen. But it's a factor. So those are all factors that are out there. There's, it's gotten such a, a attention in the last 10 years or so that there's actually now 
exchange traded funds and mutual funds and management systems that will either combine all these factors in one thing as a one-stop shop, or there's funds that will focus on more value or more size or more high quality fundamental balance sheet type weighted indices, as opposed to just the biggest companies to make up the most of the index. That sounds like these tools that they've created these tools to provide easy solutions for the investor so that me, the investor, doesn't have to do a lot of the heavy lifting myself. It's almost like the opposite of trying to hold people back. It's almost like the financial industry's trying to say, hey, here's all the stuff that's worked over time. Here's the easy button to get you access to that so you don't have to become an analyst so that you don't have to go out and figure all this stuff out. You can just push the easy button and buy it in a package. Is it going to be free? Nope, not going to be free. And then you go back and you say, well, but is it maybe worth it? Convenience is a thing we pay for all the time. Look at what people pay for their coffee while waiting in a drive-thru for 15 or 20 minutes for the convenience of not having to set their own coffee up in the morning to be ready when they wake up. Like at my house, I go downstairs and it's ready. I pour it in the mug and I have my coffee. But there's people that, I mean, you can buy the same beans even and do that at home. But there's something about getting in line at a drive-thru behind 15 other people. It's the experience, man. And having someone else make that for you. And they'll spend way more money on that item than it's probably worth. And then somebody will say, you can buy this value ETF. It's going to cost you, you know, one-tenth of one percent maybe per year. No, I couldn't possibly, even though it might potentially broad provide a higher level of results down the line. Even though it's a durable factor proven by PhDs, Nobel winning economics, economists, you know, never mind that, but you'll go pay 10 times what something's worth for other stuff. So yeah, you're right. It, it, they, they are packaging it. They're making it easy for people. You know, we talk and, and we're talking about valuation. It's the number one. Um, if you want to do some home, if people want to do homework on their own. Um, the most popular, the most, the most recognized is Warren Buffett. He's the most recognized value investor. His mentor was Benjamin Graham. And Benjamin Graham's written books, The Intelligent Investor. Warren Buffett was mentored by this man. He credits him with a lot of what he learned. Warren Buffett's system has been widely publicized. He puts out annual letters to his shareholders talking about how he thinks, how he makes decisions, and it's basically valuation. John Hussman's a resource. Um, There's the Schiller research that's out there. There's a website that we track regularly. There's a a website that's been maintained with all kinds of articles on valuation among other economic charts. It's called dshort, D-S-H-O-R-T dot com is a resource. Uh, They've got some good articles. uh, If you were to Google like uh, the market remains overvalued or is the market market expensive or is the market cheap with dshort, you're going to get, it's it's maintained now by Jill Masinski. And that's just tremendous raw data charts that can help you understand where are we now 
if you're trying to ID valuation on the overall markets, that kind of thing. Um, other free resources, there's a company called GMO in Boston. And GMO, um, at least last time I checked, has the ability to, you can freely register your, with an email to get access to their research library. And they have forecasts and articles on valuation and things like that. So that's a great resource that we use. Um, and then a huge one is there's a company called Research Affiliates that's also value-based in their mentality. And I believe with just an email, you can register some of their tools on asset allocation and some forecasts of what they think is coming down the line in terms of expected returns and what kind of risks people should be expecting from different categories of investments. So those can be tools that, uh, that people might use. It's what we use. Mm-hmm. We don't just use one. We use all of them and try to discern, okay, what's real, what's, what's valid, what's going to make sense. And then we have other software we plug some of that data in and try to figure out what our models are. It's not simple. It's not easy. You've got to be very methodical. You've got to know what you're doing, but the information's out there. So if you're a do-it-yourselfer, we just gave away a lot of the resources we might look at and, and what we track and research in order to come up with what we do with our clients. And what's important is to check the ego. So we have all of these professionals. These folks have been doing it for years. They've spent their lives building models evaluating history and yet when you look at the number of actively managed funds out there who have teams of smart people managing money these teams of managers tend not to beat the indexes yeah and 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 to that point i'd say that there's there's a nuance there and where the nuance comes in is that when one is trying to improve upon the returns that they receive compared to, say, a benchmark index, if they're trying to do that, if you're trying to beat the S&P 500 index, for example, and you're trying to do that by picking stocks differently than that index, but you're buying all the same stocks that are in that index. There's only so many ways you can be different than that index. You can have different amounts in each stock. You can own fewer of those stocks. Or you can try to do it based on timing, short-term timing. All three of those things have been proven to not be very effective in the long run. That's why most active managers don't do as well as their benchmark index. If you're trying to do it by picking the same investments that are inside the index, you're going to track the index. You're fishing in the same pond. You're going to catch the same fish yeah. in all probability, especially over a 20-year period of time. And so then it comes down to expenses. So you look and you say, oh, most of these active managers did worse by the amount of their excess expenses. Duh. However, there are managers that are out there that are flexible who can move around from asset class to asset class. They can have a little more stocks, a little more bonds. And some of them have had very few, but some of them have had been able to add value more easily than just by picking stocks or picking bonds. They can add value by allocating differently. So that's from, from a return standpoint. You just look just at returns. Odds are you're better off just owning 
something passive, something cheap. It could be passive value focused. It could be passive quality focused. It could be passive, a little smaller capitalization. You know, you could still be in large U.S. stocks, but instead of having a quarter of your money in five companies, maybe it's more equally distributed. Fama French would say, probably going to do better over the long run if you're leaning that direction. But you can do that in cheap index-like packages, ETFs or funds that are basically still very, very cheap, very passive, but they're just packaging that passive portfolio differently. So it's not just heavily weighted towards growth or the biggest companies or lower quality companies, that kind of thing. Right. So for the do-it-yourself investor who for a three, six, one year, three, six months, one year returns that they're just absolutely crushing it, that those folks should check the ego maintain humility and not get into the trap where, hey, I am better than all these people and I'm going to be able to consistently beat. Yeah, you've had a really good run here for two months off the bottom of the market in 2020 so far. And you think you're, you know, the king of all things. And this is good. This is the easiest thing since sliced bread. You haven't really seen what a storm is like yet. You've had very calm seas, nothing but up. The wind's been in your sails. You've been doing fantastic. Congratulations, by the way. If you got into investing and you're young and you're, you're excited and you got in lucky enough to get in at the bottom or near the bottom a couple months ago, good for you. But to your point, Dan, I mean, those people, you really, I mean, does somebody who's untrained, who doesn't understand stuff, who doesn't even understand certain basic terminology and understand the mechanics of how to trade, they're still just trading on their phone on some app. The odds that they're going to be the exception that's going to suddenly beat every other person out there over a long period of time, I think the odds are going to be pretty slim. So just be aware. If it's difficult for other stock picking managers to beat their benchmark, why would you think stock picking is going to be better for you? The odds are going to be the same. You're just part of the rest of the, the population. The odds are against you if you're a stock picker. But if you focus on asset allocation and risk, you do. which brings me to another point. There are active managers out there who've done about as well as their benchmark index or a little less than their benchmark index. But if they did it by taking half the risk, let's, let's say you get... 80% of the returns, but you took half the risk, half the volatility along the way. Did that manager fail or did they add some value? That sounds like you have a smoother ride if you're able to reduce volatility. You know, you risk is a more controllable factor. And if you have something that can generate roughly the similar returns and take less risk, maybe that is valuable to a lot of people. So, you don't hear risk talked about a lot in the financial media and they talk about return, 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 right? Returns important. That's how we all accumulate our assets. That's how things grow. This is very important, but emotionally a smoother ride to a lot of people tell you what, especially a lot of anybody who's like close to retirement or retired who has, has their life savings. And it, it, it's like, it's very real to them. They prefer not to have big swings. And if you can, add value by reducing that risk and still getting decent results. In a lot of ways, people like that. They've worked hard for make it to earn that money. They don't want to lose it. Yeah. 
So we've, we've talked about the, the, the areas you need to focus. You need to focus on asset allocation. That's where risk happens. That's where you manage your risk. Asset allocation, your blend between stocks, bonds, cash, and other. Focus on taxes. Understand how taxes work. Why? Because taxes can be a huge cost. And then understand expenses. Just be aware. Does it mean you need to be blinded by expenses? Oh my God, that costs 0.01%. There's no way in the world I'd ever spend a dime on anything ever. Really, you just stood in line for 15 minutes at Starbucks to buy a $5 cup of coffee. Sorry, Starbucks. You guys have a great business. Obviously, people are willing to pay for certain things if they have value in it. It's no different in the investment world. You pay your doctors. You pay to go have surgery. You pay the dentist. Mm -hmm. It's okay to pay money for things that have value. Just make sure you're getting a value out of it. And do the math when you're looking at those e the expenses. So sometimes I've seen some ETFs where the fund's expenses are 0.01%. I've seen others that are like 0.1%. Do the actual math to find out what you're paying. And when you look at the dollar amount, that you're actually talking about, I, I it guess it might not be that big of a deal, right? I, I guess it's saying. like when you're searching for gas, and and I'm driving around town looking to fill my tank up with gas. If I can get a gallon of gas for three forty nine here, or if I could drive across town and get it for you know three thirty nine, well, I've just spent a half hour driving downtown or to the other side of town to get the gas. And doing the math, maybe I only actually saved myself a dollar. a dollar. Right. So in the grand scheme of things, a dollar is yeah. not that much. You could burn a gallon. You could burn $3 of gas to go save a dollar on the tank. Now, the other side of that, sense. expenses, it is controllable. I can choose to get cheaper gas. But it's just understanding that impact and not being so, is the word dogmatic about your decisions? Yeah. Or, I mean, people tend to simple, oversimplify sometimes. We've talked about our, when our principles is simple and effective. Well, if you oversimplify, you actually might not be as effective as you might have been. So there's a, love, there's a balancing act between simple, overly simple, simplistic, we'll call it, and overly complicated. There's a, there's a sweet spot. Just be aware of it. And to your point, you said do the math. This is a critical thing, and I think we've, we've said this before, but let's say you have two mutual funds. And one mutual fund got an 8% return. We'll call that investment A, got an 8% return. And investment B got a 8.5% return. A little bit better. Now, investment A has an expense inside the fund of, let's call it, half a percent per year. 0.5. So it, it cost 0.5, and it got 8% per year, say, for the last decade. And the other investment, it got 8.5% per year. But its expense is 1% per year. What people need to realize is that you, no you don't have to do any math at this point. You don't have to subtract the expenses from the return that was published in, on the Internet. If an investment like a mutual fund or an index fund or an ETF says that it did 8.5% for the last decade, that's what it got after 
the 1% expense. You don't have to do any subtraction. The one that got the higher return got the higher return. Even though it was more expensive. Even though it was more expensive. Does that mean anything? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Could it be skill? Could it be luck? That's a whole nother discussion. But I have seen people over and over again, even people we've worked with for years, sit down and try to ask about expense ratios and then proceed to subtract those expenses from their actual return. And it's just not accurate. Returns are always published after expenses. Always. Just be aware of that. So you know your risk tolerance. You know your goals. You figured out your asset allocation. You've you've looked at what are your different investment strategies. Are you going to be more passive? Are you going to be long-term? Are you going to be more value? Are you going to be more active? Are you going to use leverage? You're looking strategically now. We're drilling down step by step. Now you want to go deeper. And we may not take all the time in the world today to go in, into all this, but there's basically a few things to consider. Number one, you probably, as, as you begin to accumulate your investment portfolio, you need to expand your equity. You need to expand your menu. On the equity side, on the stock side of things, there's more than just the S&P 500 index. Way, way more than just that or the total market. And there's, like we said, some people are wired. They'd rather, they, they're fine with that. But as things grow and as time goes on, that will not necessarily be the dominant category each and every decade of your life. You need to expand your menu. You need to think a little bit more granular when you look at the stock market overall. It's a big world out there. There's value versus growth investments. We talked about value earlier. There's stock markets in countries all over the world. There's indexes of foreign and international investments. Both the developed foreign countries like Western Europe, Japan, South Korea. And there's also the emerging countries, the emerging economies that are still good economies. They have stock markets. They've got publicly traded businesses. They've got publicly traded bonds the emerging markets. So that could be Latin America, a good part of it. That could be Eastern Europe. That could be parts of Asia, um, corners of Africa, potentially. Um, and then you've got like frontier markets where they just are barely getting going. And we tend to not really focus on the frontier, but you've got categories. You've got large and small. You've got index funds that focus on growth of the dividends, for example. You've got momentum funds. You've got multi-factor, like we talked about, where they can package all those little durable factors up in one little package for you. You also need to expand your, your thoughts on the fixed income side of the world. These are the bonds and loan-type investments. If equities are owning-type investments where you own a business or you own real estate, fixed income is where you loan money to somebody. You could loan money to the U.S. Treasury. Those are treasuries. Short term, they call them bills. Intermediate term, they call them notes. Long term, they call them bonds at the treasury. But you also could have corporate bonds. Those could be different quality. Big companies might be considered investment grade. Then you have high yield. Then you have private debt, privately held companies that have borrowed money. Um, and you can invest in things that loan them money. There's international bonds. There's the emerging, just like there are in stocks. You just need to expand your menu and be aware these things exist. There's CDs. 
there's even now funds that have um, instead of owning a, a, a thousand bonds at all times, there's there's exchange traded funds out there that they only own things that mature all in the same year. So I want to I want a ETF that owns 150 bonds and they all come due in the year 2023. And then there's another one that's 2024, another one 2025. And you can really structure things and use those tools effectively sometimes. So that's another thing that's been that's come out lately. But as you go down, as people go down, go down their journey, assuming you know your risk tolerance and your goals, you need to ask also what style suits you. This goes to our know yourself guideline. Are you going to be more traditional? Are you somebody that's like, hey, I have to be able to look at the news on TV and see what the Dow Jones Industrial Average did today. And then I want to go and look at my account. And I want my account, if it's an up day in the Dow Jones, I expect my account will be up. If it's a down day in the Dow Jones, I expect my account to be down. And because I can make sense of that, I would call that more of a traditional investor that they want to be with the herd. They don't want to be different. They want to be able to kind of be go along for the ride and the good times and bad. And if good, they can just make sense of it. Oh, why am I up? Well, you're up because the market's up. Why am I down? You're down because it's a bear market. Market's down. Oh, that makes sense to me. At least I'm not alone. You might also be somebody that says, you know, I'm okay being a little bit different sometimes because in the long run, hopefully I do better than that arbitrary thing I'm comparing to. Yeah, well, you just mentioned that you investing, you do something different than the herd, then you should expect different type of results. So yeah, uh, if your value, if you're focusing on value, that's different than just investing in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So if the Dow Jones Industrial Average is zigging, your investments might be zagging. It's absolutely possible in short periods of time. Even a, even a durable factor that's been proven by Nobel winning people, even that can have an underperformance. Even Warren Buffett, the greatest investor you know of his generation, of multiple generations apparently, even he has had periods of up to three years where he's underperformed the overall market. And he just sticks to his discipline. He's like, we're doing our thing. We're doing our thing. We're going to do our thing. But it takes courage to do your thing. There have been some very, very successful investors over history where they didn't just buy the overall market and they just did their thing with discipline and their strategy worked over time. That's why we keep harping on 10, 20-year periods of time when you're investing in the stock market. And there's people, we've heard this before, where somebody says, hey, I may not be alive in 20 years because I'm retired or whatever. Well, or I may, you know, I'm, I'm too old to think. My, they, use, they use retirement as the finish line. And the reality is your, your retirement date is not the finish line. It's the starting line of a new way of investing from that day forward for the remainder of your life expectancy. So if you're 65, you're... Odds are you're going to live another 20 years. And the, if you're 70, odds are you're going to live longer than 15 years. Yeah. The longer you last, the longer you're expected to last. So we, we tend to do planning out to age 90, 95, 100, because that's actually possible that somebody can last that long. So as certainly one of two people 
there's a high probability that somebody lives to 90. So yeah, you got to know yourself. You got to start thinking, are you passive? Are you somebody that likes passive low cost? And that's just your value system that you want. You need to feel like you're, you're doing it that way. And it's, you're comfortable with that. There's active strategies. And then if you're going to be active, you got to start thinking, how, how am I going to be active? And how's that work? What kind of, what kind of active strategy am I going to be using? And, yeah. and do I feel good about that? If you understand it, that's important. We have some clients who are on the more passive side where they ride it out. They know that in the long run, they believe in the long run, the market's going to provide Correct. good returns over time. And there are others who say, I want to do something. Right. I want to take action because I didn't like what just happened the beginning of 2020 when COVID hit and that market came down or in 2017 or 2008. I, that didn't feel good. I want to be mm-hmm. taking some sort of action with my investments. I had people in at the end of the 2000, 2001, 2002, three-year bear market. You throw 9-11 in the middle of there on top of it. At the end of that period, when it finally came back in 2003, I had I sit down with a lot of clients at that time, and they said, okay, that was horrible. I don't ever ever want to go through that again ever and over time we we had to adjust we had to focus on risk management we had to focus on identifying what's their risk tolerance and tools have been developed thankfully over the years that to help us become much much more effective at matching things to people but you need to know yourself you need to know what what systems you're going to be putting into place and if you're doing it on your own more power to you. If you're using an advisor, your advisor should probably be able to help you identify that. I mean, in our case, what we try to do is come up with multiple ways of doing this. Uh, we call it, there's like more than one way to skin the cat. Sure. We provide options. We say, hey, you could do it this way. You could do it that way. You can do it the other way. They all might, you know, in all probability have worked historically, but which one? Now we're down to personal preference. And they're not going to vary dramatically from one another. It's just about what's the experience along the way look like. That's right. And the do-it-yourselfer, just because you're doing it yourself, and that's great that you are, you need to ask these questions. Or you're really missing out if you choose not to ask these types of questions. And then you need to consider your loved ones and the other people in your family. Because if you're the investment person in the household, you're, and you're married, your spouse, uh, their their thoughts should be considered as well. I think I think everybody in the household should at least have an idea of what's going on. Yeah. In in, in their financial situation, and it needs to be considered. Um, and and there's just a great big world out there that's way bigger than just whatever's done best the last ten years. And I'm seeing that now, where where people are just focused in on just oh. The, that's what's worked. That's the only thing I ever have to do ever. And you just study history a little bit, and it's not always been the best way to go about doing things. There's other considerations. It's just it's not as simple as we all want it to be, but it also doesn't have to be crazy complicated. There's like people think there's an on-off switch when it comes to compl- complexity or, 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 or um, I guess just complexity. It's either on or it's off. Or it's high risk and no risk. And there's this 
big gray area in between where you can find exactly the sweet spot that matches you just perfectly. And that just takes more effort. You, but you, but you, you gotta, you, you gotta act as like a doctor would. You gotta assess, you gotta diagnose, and then prescribe based on probability, and just use best practices. Over the long period of time, that's what tends to be most effective. That's the main, the main thing there. So it's, it's risk. It's taxes, it's expenses, it's understanding it's a big world. There's another menu out there of investment options. It's understanding what strategies make sense to you and what's been proven to be more effective over the long run. There's a lot of anecdotal there's a lot of anecdotes out now, especially right now about with day traders. And this happened in 2002, 1999, their day trading was a huge thing. And now we've got day traders that weren't even born then. And that's not real to them. But there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there of people who've made 40% off the bottom back in because they took huge amount of risk or whatever. And they've made the trading options and they're using leverage and they're using these advanced techniques and they're jumping and spinning and doing somersaults to kick these boards and they were successful a few times and they've done a good job. Congratulations. But it's only been a few months. Things that are durable are the best practices. It's what we talked about today. Just focus on the basics. Just get great at the basics. And if you're great at the basics and then you want to add a little jump in there for your kick or a spin and make it a little more fancy to be cool or maybe squeeze a little extra fun out of it, that's fine. But you need to really master the basics. Here's what you don't need to master. You don't need to master stock analysis. You don't need to become Warren Buffett. One by one, analyzing SEC filings that they've made day in, day out. Some people are into that. That's fine. You're still stock picking. You're still playing the odds, and the odds are against you. But hey, if you're enjoying it and you're successful at it for a long, long period of time, congratulations. Maybe you should start a fund of your own. But you don't need to do that. You don't need to master short-term market timing. You don't need to master deciphering the charts and all the different curves and waves and different kinds of charting that's available to chart stocks 150,000 different ways. You don't need to know anything about that stuff to be successful. You just need to master the basics. If you master asset allocation and taxes and expenses, you can be very, very, very effective. Provided you're aligned with your goals and provided you're aligned with your risk tolerance. You don't need to master those charts. You don't need to become some market technician. And you don't need to know everything that's going on in the world every second of every day. You Say it differently. You don't need to pay attention to the headlines. Yep. And that was a point you made earlier in this week is that you, you were talking about how Everywhere you go, you walk into a, a branch office of a brokerage firm, and most of the time there's a big screen TV on, on there with some business news channel 24-7 nonstop with the ticker going by. 
And the implication is all that's important and relevant to every person that walks through the door. And the fact of the matter is almost none of that is relevant to the average person that walks through that door. What matters is their risk tolerance, their goals, and what asset allocation matches that. It's a detriment to them. I it mean, absolutely it's forcing is. people to focus short-term rather than on the long-term objectives. Yeah. It's sexy. It's entertaining. But it's, is it relevant to your future? No, probably not. It's just complicated. There's information overload. It, it, there's lots of drama on financial media. And for most people, for most of the bell curve of humanity in America, you don't need to have any idea of what's going on in that stuff on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis. It's a business designed to get your attention so that you can watch the commercials, so that you'll buy the products for the people, the commercials. It's a business. And most of the 24-7 business news channels they're owned by very large publicly traded corporations that are there to make a profit. They're not public services there to help you get what you want for your investing. They're there to sell you stuff. So be aware of that. Um, you know, so, so we've talked about a lot today and, and a lot of the things we've, we've talked about previously apply. We've, we have these eight guidelines we keep going back to, to give people some place to go to center themselves when they're talking about their financial, um, their financial decisions and whether it's investment decision. I mean, today we focused on investing, but all the financial decisions, there's still those eight guidelines. And today we, we're applying some of those. Yeah. It's worth spending a few minutes just to go back and kind of rehash those guidelines and how we're applying them toward investing. The know yourself is our first guideline. And that gets back to, know your risk tolerance know how much stomach acid what your stomach acid level is and how much volatility you can take know your goals know your preferences know your financial situation we've talked about that before the second one is you need to put the big rocks first you need to prioritize and that's what we started off today. The big thing that has the biggest impact is your asset allocation. That's where risk is managed. And we talked about that. you got to prioritize that before you start picking stocks or picking bonds or picking CDs. You need to have some sort of a strategy. And if you start with that big rock, you're going to have a strategic overview of that. Yes. Uh, the next, live within your means. So yeah. frugality is a superpower. Saving and we, is and we a touched superpower. on that. If you if you save if you spend less and save more, you're going to reach your financial goals, your long term goals, probably a little quicker because you're funding your goals. That's right. That makes sense. There's power in that. It's a superpower. You need to ask until you understand. Ask questions until you understand. Hopefully, we're trying to add, we're adding a little bit of value today to folks. But if if people are listening to a podcast, if they're reading, if they're engaged in the process with their advisor, if they're trying to understand and learn. And, and obviously anyone listening today is, is, is doing that. They're asking questions. They're wondering. They're trying to learn. You need to be simple. You need to be effective. And we talked about that. There's a balancing act. You can't be overly simplistic. You can't be overly complicated. There's this happy sweet spot somewhere. You need to always be seeking to find that. And simpler tends to be better. Focus on controllables. You can control taxes based on where you're investing your money to some extent. You can 
you have after-tax non-qualified investment accounts. Mm -hmm. You have retirement accounts that are tax-deferred, and you have potentially Roth accounts that are tax-free. You can choose where your assets are invested, and those decisions can impact your taxes. You can choose which funds you choose to invest in. You can choose your asset allocation. You can choose... The you can pay attention to expenses. Yes, you can't control that taxes exist. You can't control what the market's going to do. You can't predict what the market's going to do very well. You can just do your best. Yep. You if you understand what's worked in history, you understand durable factors that have been proven. You understand that things that are overly complicated can create tax costs. They can create expenses that can actually reduce your return. If you know those things, you can focus on very, very effective basics that will work without being overly complicated. That's right. Put your energy toward those things that you can control and you're, you're taking steps forward. Yes. A probability and not prediction. You, you, uh, we, we just touched on this too. Yeah. You can't predict what's going to happen. And it, I laugh every single time I see somebody make a post on a f- private Facebook group or somewhere online that says, and they'll, it's like they're pounding their fist saying, this is going to happen. This stock's going to 10. This stock's going to 25. This stock's going to 70. The stock market's going to go to 18,000. The stock market's going to go to 45,000. They don't know. It's hilarious. John Kenneth Galbraith in his book, we covered the the great crash, 1929. He talked about when things are most uncertain, people become the most dogmatic. Boy, I tell you right now, I mean, the whole world's crazy and uncertain. And here you have people on polar opposites saying this is this way and this is that way. And when it comes to your investing, you got to avoid that kind of prediction level of thought. What's been probable over history? What's worked over what time frame over history? What's correlated really tightly with what time frame of returns moving forward? What worked? The valuation, like you talked about. And people say, well, this time, this year is totally different than every other year. This recession is different than every other recession. This election year is different than every other election year. Every recession is different than every other recession. Every bull market is different than every other bull market. And every election is different than every other election. It doesn't matter. What's been durable? What are the durable factors? Valuation, size, quality, momentum. Those are just some of them. Here's what else is durable. Things don't tend to repeat. The thing that did the best the last 10 years isn't going to likely be in all probability. At least it's never happened before. That would tell me is a low probability that whatever did best the last 10 years is not going to be the best thing the next 10 years. This is why chasing returns doesn't work. Probability. Check your ego and realize that just because you read it doesn't mean it's 100% that's the way it's going to be. The one constant is change, not static. And the last guideline, who, not how. 
sometimes if you're sitting down and you're trying to figure out, oh, I've got this money, how do I invest it for my retirement? I've got to read D. Short and Hussman and Schiller, and I've got to do all this research, and i got to figure out what stocks to buy to build my portfolio now that I understand my asset allocation. Well, there's blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of stuff and a lot of decisions to be made. And you don't have to make them all by yourself. There's actual people out there that you can actually hire that can help. And whether it's that stuff, whether it's a financial advisor, a fiduciary, we would obviously recommend an independent fiduciary, a registered investment advisor that owns their own company rather than somebody who works for somebody else. And then you only have one boss, your client. That's our preference, but that's been our journey. But also for taxes. Hey, you don't have to know everything about the tax code. You just need to be somewhat familiar. And if you're crazy, really, really, really don't want to deal with it, there's like these professionals. They're CPAs, certified public accountants. They'd be happy to help you with that. Are they free? Nope, they're not free. But it might be worth it for you to just not have to deal with it. Well, you said the exchange-traded funds earlier as we were preparing. Yeah, it's in a whole other level, too. That if if you're sold, uh, you understand, you've learned, and you said, yes, I believe that this valuation is something that I need to focus on. There are funds out there that invest in that in way. The, yeah. yeah, it's packaged. Or if you say, hey, I'm going to be a momentum investor, there's a momentum fund. There's, there's lots of funds that follow that kind of thing. you got to read a little bit because they don't always say momentum in their title. But it's packaged. There's stuff out there to make your life easy. There's attorneys. We, 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 we interviewed with Kevin Camden. It, you can set, you, he said you can get like an 70-80% solution by going online and getting your own document. But you can get something really, really good if, by using a professional. And then you know it's correct for your state or for your situation. You, they're going to ask you questions you never even thought to ask. It's what you don't know that you don't know is where the problem is. Ask who, not how. You don't have to go reinvent the wheel. You don't have to become Warren Buffett and read The Intelligent Investor and try to figure out your own spreadsheet for calculating intrinsic value of a business. And there's a case to be made on that book. I mean, the book was written in, I think, the 30s. The world's changed a little bit. Businesses are changed a little bit. You know, they're, they're talking about factories and hard assets and things like that and figuring out the value of a company. And there's entire businesses out there these days where their biggest asset is relationships. You look at a company like Uber, it's technology. They don't own the cars. They don't have employees. They have a technology that connects them all together so that there's a business that comes out of it. Airbnb, same thing. Does Airbnb own the homes and the condos that you rent? It's just networks of relationships. How do you put that in the book value? But again, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go reinvent the wheel. You can just delegate it. And these days, you can delegate it really, really inexpensively in a lot of cases. Well, I hope we provided some value today to the folks listening. I hope so. There's people out there that want to hear that there's some like magical secret sauce, the creative good stuff that's been held back. And the silver bullet. The silver bullet's like, hey, if I listen to this podcast, they're going to teach us the real secrets to like doing better than all my neighbors forever. And uh, it's it's the fundamentals. Just master the basics. Just master the basics. Master the fundamentals, and you'll find you 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 can be. You, 
you can be very effective. You know, so everybody, thank you so very much for listening to this podcast. We we feel like we're new to this media, and uh, we can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. Um, if you would like to contact us, you can reach us at social media. We are at Fierce Fiduciary. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Um, Dan and I are also on Facebook. Um LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter and Instagram personally as well. You can find us on Brian C. Beasley usually. And uh, we have a private Facebook group that we administer called Investing and Financial Planning for Beginners. Um, I'm active in other groups as well. And uh, we also, if you want to support us, we do have a company, Athena Private Wealth. So if you have gone to find your independent advisor and you've gone through episode seven and you can't find anybody that can answer the questions from episode seven, you know, we're certainly available. We do this for a living. Um, I want to, I want to put out a special thank you to a gentleman named Mike Sorelli at a company called Echelon Front. Echelon Front does leadership consulting. And Mike Sorelli was on a Zoom call that I attended a week or so ago. And he, he said something that was, became really the genesis for the theme today in this episode. He said, when you master the basics, you become truly advanced. And Mike, I just want to thank you for those words because that was something that I always knew in the back of my head, but you provided us with a focus today to help people with their finances. And uh, if, if you are out there and you have a team of people that you work with, or if you want to be a leader in some way, there is no better resource that I could recommend ever than Echelon Front. You can go to echelonfront.com. They also have an online version. Uh, I am a client of Echelon Front. And you can look at EF Online, which is where you can get access to those Zoom tools. They are not a sponsor of this podcast. We are not paid for this endorsement. I just want to send out that thank you and that gratitude to them. So once again, thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you're so moved, please review the podcast. Please share the podcast with your friends and please subscribe to the podcast and we'll hopefully be able to bring more value to you um, in the coming months and weeks and years. Thank you again. Until next time. Cue the tiger.